The CBF podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. Hey, podcast listeners, this is your host, Andy Hale. We are thrilled to bring you another year of CBF's podcast with a cavalcade of brilliant guests such as Father Tom Reese, Washington Post's Sarah Pulliam Bailey, Mark Charles, Soong Chen Ra, and Matthew Paul Turner. And that's just skimming the surface in the first few months. As you know, last fall, we launched the Podcast Listener Support Project. This is an opportunity for you to connect closer with the podcast and premier guest. By becoming a podcast supporter, you can join me on an interview with premier guests such as Walter Brueggemann, Sarah Bessie, and Brian McLaren. So check out cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by Equal Exchange. Equal Exchange is a 33-year-old fair trade organization that works with small-scale farmers in 20 countries to bring you organic coffee, tea, chocolate, cocoa, and nuts. Serve high-quality coffee during fellowship that matches your congregation's values with prices starting at $0.10 a cup. Fundraising with fairly traded products at an Easter or Christmas event. Equal Exchange also offers a line of products from Palestinian farmers in the West Bank, including organic olive oil, moftul, frika, and dates. For more information, visit equalexchange.coop backslash interfaith. That's equalexchange.coop backslash interfaith. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Mark Charles and Sung Chan Ra. They're, they are co-authors for a new book, Unsettled Truths. Uh, Mark and Sunshan, thank you for uh, joining the conversation. Glad to be on. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Well, let's get to know you a little better. Uh, well, Mark, let's, let's get started with you. Um, you're, you're an activist and a speaker and a writer. Um, 
You also have a fascinating dual history um, as a citizen of the Navajo Nation and the United States. You're the son of an American woman of Dutch heritage and a, and a Navajo man. How, how is that kind of uh, dual and, and blended history um, you know, kind of prepare you and shape you into who you are today? Uh, that's a good question. Let me start by just introducing myself. So, Yak A, Mark Charles Yunishia, Sin Bake Dene and Nishwin, Dotokuni Bashachin, Sin Bake Dene Dashachay, Dotokuni Dashanella. In the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans. And we're a matrilineal people with our identities coming from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, which is why I say Sin Bake Dene and Nishwin. Translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is um, Toi Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin Bekedene'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge that I am um, on this call from Washington, D.C., and this is the land uh, that traditionally belonged to the Piscataway. Uh, the Piscataway Nation were the people who lived here. They farmed here. They hunted here. They fished here. They raised their children here. And they buried their dead here. These were the people who were here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And these were the people who were removed so that the state of, of Virginia and Maryland and the District of Columbia could be built up. And I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no matter where I go. Um, you are in the uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and that is the land of the Choctaw Nation. And I want to honor um, not only the lands that I'm on, but the, the lands of the call that you're calling from, which are the Choctaw uh, Nation who lived in that area of Louisiana around Baton Rouge, where you are speaking from. I like to acknowledge the native host of the land, no matter where I go. A, I find it's very helpful to remember that these lands were not discovered. And B, it's, it helps me to conduct myself with greater humility when I remember that there's a history to these lands that predates uh, the history we're told in our history books and that we're given in our schools. And what's interesting, if you notice about how I even introduce myself is I, as a Navajo, we're matrilineal and so our identities come from our mother. And so on our reservation among our people, I cannot introduce myself without telling people that I'm Dutch. But US and Western society is patriarchal and your identity comes primarily from your father. And so off the reservation, people see me and interact with me as the son of my father, who is Navajo. And so as I've grown up and I, I, I grew up in, you know, on a, on a mission compound, on the outskirts of the Navajo nation, in a checkerboard area. It's part of our traditional lands, but it was colonized um, at, a, at a mission called Rehoboth, which was founded by the Christian Reformed Church. And, um, but my, my native, my father's parents lived on campus with us. We had relatives on the reservation, and yet the environment was very Dutch. And I often tell people, like, I grew up in a Dutch ghetto just off of the Navajo Nation. Um, and because I've been forced to identify myself as both Dutch and Navajo because of the different under, cultural understandings of who you are. It's really forced me over the years to think very intentionally about who am I? 
and what does it mean to be not only the, the son of my mother or the son of my father, but the son of both of my parents. Um, and so over the, over the past two decades of my life, I have made some very intentional choices. Because I grew up on a reservation, on a border town, I grew up in a more prominent white area, and I went to school in a, uh, in a Western school, and I went off and got my degree from UCLA. I've lived a lot of my life in, in kind of the, the Western space. And so as I began raising my family, and as I began working more and more with our people, I realized that there's a lot of things I don't understand or have not experienced about my father's side of the family. And so my wife and I, in early 2000s, uh, made the intentional choice to move from Denver, Colorado, back to the Navajo Nation. Sunchan, you are a professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. How how does one get in the business of church growth? <laughs> well, you know, um, this particular position at North Park uh, started during the church growth craze of the 70s and 80s. And so if you actually look at a lot of seminaries, uh, especially evangelical ones, uh, they would uh, oftentimes have uh, either an evangelism professor or more likely an evangelism professor tied to a church growth professor um, that start in the 70s and 80s, right around at the height of that um, evangelical moment of church growth. Um, so some, some schools have done away with that particular title for, uh, for that position. Uh, others have kind of revamped it. I think, I think the first was actually at Fuller, and they don't even use that title anymore. Uh, but the whole idea is uh, now, at least the way I look at it, is how is the church engaging the culture? How is the church speaking to the world around us? Um, so I think the term around church growth may be a little bit antiquated uh, because of the ways that it's been misused over the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years, the way it's been misused. So now... The way I look at it, evangelism um, and the ways that the church engages the culture around it, that's really more of what my position entails. So what you're saying yeah. is that North Park is not necessarily producing megachurch pastors after megachurch pastors. <laughs> yeah, our statistics on that will be relatively low uh, in terms of megachurch, although our denomination does have a number of megachurches, uh, and you know, not to say that they're neither bad nor good, uh, but it is a part of the kind of the ethos around evangelicalism in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, where church growth and megachurches were thought to be the norm or aspirational for many churches. Uh, and, and we're obviously in a different era now in the uh, 2000 forward, where uh, that kind of approach to ministry has seen a lot of problems associated with it. Some of the triumphalism, some of the abuses, uh, some of the problematic elements of church growth that uh, we've seen come up with a lot of the megachurches in the U.S. now, where many of them have basically imploded. Uh, so some of the values around church growth, um, you know, have been, have been called into question, let's say. You have a new book out together, Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, this work is a profoundly theological and historical survey of the last nearly 600-year period of discovery and expansion and enslavement and genocide and colonization and segregation and dehumanization at the hands of namely Christian European uh, Americans. And you wrote uh, 
the conflation of the kingdom of God with earthly empire was not what Christ intended for the church. Central to Christianity is a sacrificial love and laying down of one's life. Empires are concerned with self-preservation, conquest, and expansion. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about the conception of this book. Uh, Mark, we'll start with you. Yeah, well, this book, I mean, it started with, basically with research and um, just the experience I had of living on the Navajo Nation on our reservation back in the Southwest and experiencing the extreme marginalization as well as the ongoing historical trauma and challenges that all of our Native nations face living here in the U.S. Uh, and around the time, this is early 2000. 2003, 2004, when our family moved from Denver, Colorado, where I was pastoring a church called the Christian Indian Center, and we were investigating, we were understanding what it meant to be Native and be Christian, and moved back to the reservation to basically understand life on the reservation better because I grew up in a border town. Around the same time as when some, some writings and some work were being done by uh, academics like Steve Newcomb, who wrote a great book called Pagans in the Promised Land, and uh, other, other people who have begun working on the doctrine of discovery and bringing this conversation to the forefront. So while I'm living there and experiencing the intense marginalization and um, historical trauma of our community, I'm also beginning to be exposed more to this history of the doctrine of discovery. And I began writing about that probably um, around 2010, 2012. And uh, when I met Sunshan, he was working on his book called, uh, the one, his previous book called Prophetic Lament. And I was lecturing on the doctrine of discovery. And both of us were calling the church to a space of lament. And we realized as we became friends and did some work together that we were crisscrossing across the country, um, saying, calling basically the church to the same place, but using two different narratives to get us there. And uh, it was 2013, 2014, we began talking about writing a book together. And that was signed a contract. We had offers from a few publishers um, uh, and decided to go with InterVarsity Press and thought it would take a year to write the book. And it took four. Um, and so <laughs> just as, as we got more in depth into the content of the book, um, not only were things happening politically and in our society that were changing um, some of the narrative of the book, but also as we began researching some of the history, um, the things we were uncovering. Um, already I knew the history was bad, but as we got even deeper into the writing the book out and researching some things more in depth, um, things got just worse and worse and worse. And finally, after three and a half years, we just had to kind of bury our heads in the sand, stop paying attention to politics, stop paying attention to uh, the evangelical church, and even stop researching history and just write the book, get it out, so we can begin to get the conversation going. Yeah, Mark and I um, found ourselves at a lot of conferences together. Uh, and oftentimes, it would be speaking back to back. Uh, so Mark would talk about the doctrine of discovery, and then I would talk about uh, my work on lament. And uh, as we, you know, we were friends, and as we're talking at these different uh, uh, places together, we realized I, I think I think we're talking about the same thing here. Uh, and so it's kind of a natural uh, um, relationship, friendship type of um, 
emergence of, uh, hey, I, I think God's kind of impressing upon us uh, similar thoughts, similar reflections. Um, and so I think the partnership of the two of us writing the book together has been a really robust and, and, uh, and good one uh, and fun to, be, to, be, uh, to add that on top of that. Um, I think um, my background um, in, in kind of my doctoral work in history and theology, uh, trying to reflect theologically on history, uh, was almost a perfect fit with Mark's work uh, and his research into history, but also his kind of real-life lived experience and the ways that his uh, narrative, his own narrative, but also the narrative of his people, uh, were reflecting some profound uh, theological problems that came out of a very, very problematic history. Uh, so this kind of combination of our, uh, of our uh, disciplines and our, and our thoughts actually has, I think has resulted in a, in a, in a pretty helpful and, and hopefully uh, stimulating book. Well, you wrote from a theological perspective, the legal and political role of the doctrine of discovery is rooted in the dysfunctional theological imagination that shaped the European colony settlers worldview. Um, Sung Chen, uh, walk us through the theological implications of the doctrine of discovery. I, I know that seems like a, a very, like, well, how much time do I have to talk about that? But just kind of briefly walk <laughs> us through the, the, the main theological implications for it. Sure. I mean, the, the, the larger framework around this is that um, Western society, American uh, Christianity, Western Christianity, has a theological worldview or a theological imagination, uh, theological perspective uh, that has formed over centuries. It, it didn't just pop up out of, out of nowhere. Uh, it formed over many, many years and many, many centuries. Um, and this theological imagination, uh, sometimes we assume that it is absolutely correct or there is no problematic elements to it. And so what Mark and I are trying to point towards is that there's actually some profound theological dysfunction that has shaped our worldview, that has shaped our imagination. Uh, and there's other excellent writings on this. Willie Jennings, uh, who was my uh, mentor at Duke, uh, Christian Imagination uh, alludes to this. Uh, Bill Cavanaugh has written about this in, in some of his writings. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has written about this. But the idea is that um, we have formed an imagination, and I'm not talking about like making up thoughts in our mind or making up fairy tale type of imagination. Uh, the imagination that allows us to perceive the world, uh, to categorize the world and to understand the world, that kind of worldview imagination, um, we assume that it is almost always pure and untainted. Uh, but I think what we're pointing to is if we look at the history, going back to even some things about the emergence of the white Anglo-Saxon mythology, uh, and certainly the formation of the doctrine of discovery, how so many theological assertions throughout church history has created a very uh, dysfunctional and diseased imagination. And so in particular, we're pointing out the doctrine of discovery, uh, which is a series of papal bulls that were issued by the Catholic Church that essentially gave a theological justification for conquest and, um, and, um, and, and, um, and abuses uh, of the European powers over and against particularly native and African bodies. Uh, and so where did that imagination come from? Uh, it came from the assumption that the European body was superior to the black body in Africa, superior to the native body in the Americas. Uh, and that was a theological problem. 
And so what we point towards are these historical statements and doctrinal statements that were made by the church that led to the formation of this very, very dysfunctional and ultimately destructive imagination. Mark, in your research for this book, what shocked you the most from some of these historical records that have have been kind of propelling this doctrine forward? Um, there have been several places where I've had to just pause and take even not just a few hours, but a few days and sometimes even a few weeks off from writing because I was learning things that were just blowing my mind. Um, you know, there was one point in the writing of the book, this was almost two years ago when I was finishing up a, a section on white supremacy and, uh, began to, to want to include a story of Abraham Lincoln, where he, he has a, there's a quote hanging in the memorial of him uh, basically saying, black lives don't matter. If I could save the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. And I knew that quote was there. I had seen it at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, I had been there and I wanted to include that story in, in the book. And so I woke up one morning early and I was gonna write this story into the end of the section on white supremacy and, you know, to, to really write the story, I thought, well, I should, I knew the quote was there. I knew what it said. I knew how I wanted to frame it. But, well, I knew it came from um, in response to an op-ed written by Horace Greeley from the New York Tribune. So I decided to read the op-ed. And the op-ed referenced something that Abraham Lincoln had said in his inauguration address. And so I thought, well, I should read the inauguration address. So I read that. And in that inauguration address, Abraham Lincoln quoted himself directly from something he said in the Lincoln-Douglas debate. And so I thought, well, I should probably read that. And so as I'm going back, and I'm back now, this is well into my hour of trying to write this history or this story into it. And now I'm in the middle of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and I'm reading this quote by Abraham Lincoln, and it absolutely floored it just because I've never read it before. But what it says is it says, I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races to applause, that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I read that and I'm just like, Lincoln is a blatant, unapologetic white supremacist. And I, 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 I've always pictured him as this, this guy who was fighting for freedom for the slaves and was transforming our nation from a slave nation into a free nation. Yes, he had some very serious problems, but he was basically a good guy. And I read that quote and I was like, he's a blatant white supremacist. And so my mythology of him began to break down. And so I began researching more and I began looking more at this history and I began understanding more of how he did not give a crap about black lives. And in the middle of this, like three months later, I was asked to speak at the Poor People's Campaign by Dr. Barber here in DC. Not he didn't ask me, but his organization asked me. And I had two minutes on President's Day 
to talk about anything I wanted to talk about. And I decided if I had two minutes on President's Day, I was going to deconstruct Lincoln. So I was sitting in my house that morning. I wasn't reading anything. I wasn't researching anything. I was pondering what I was going to say that night. And I knew all of this, but in, in 1862, we had the Dakota War. In December 26 of 1862, we had Abraham Lincoln um, ordering the, the hanging of the Dakota 38. In um, the fall of 1863, we had General Carleton giving an order to Kit Carson to have a scorched earth campaign against the Navajo. In 1864, we have um, the U.S. Army coming over an encampment of, of Cheyenne and Arapaho in, uh, in Colorado and committing the Sand Creek Massacre. We have Throughout 1863, 1864, we have Kit Carson going through New Mexico, literally rounding up Native peoples and those he didn't shoot. He marched down to Bosco Dondo. And I'm sitting there with this thought in my memory, thinking about Abraham Lincoln and this quote I've just read. And all my life as a, as a Navajo man, I have blamed Kit Carson for the long walk. He was the one who went through and burned our buildings. He was the one who went through and, and killed our animals. He was the one who went through and burned our crops. He was the one who was shooting our people and, and herding us down like animals to Bosquedondo, to Fort Sumner, where we were imprisoned in the death camp for three years, killing a quarter of the people who were brought down there. And I've always blamed Kit Carson for the long walk. And that morning as I was sitting there preparing to speak that night, Abraham Lincoln's face replaced Kit Carson's in my head. And I realized it was his policies who was the one who was ordering the ethnic cleansing, not only of the Navajo and, and Apache from the Southwest, but of the Cheyenne and Arapaho from Colorado and of the, um, the, the Dakota and the Winnebago from Minnesota as he was making way for the Transcontinental Railway to go across the country. And I suddenly realized Abraham Lincoln was the one ethnically cleansing and committing genocide against Native peoples. And that thought just blew my mind. And that caused a huge shift in the book. Because not only did he do this, but why do we celebrate him? Why is he our greatest president? What about how do we get to to this understanding of this genocidal maniac who doesn't give a crap about black lives who didn't free the slaves who actually put in the i mean his his legacy is the 13th amendment but the 13th amendment doesn't actually abolish slavery it keeps it legal in prison how did this guy get this mythological story wrapped around him where we hold him up as our greatest leader when actually he's probably even worse than Andrew Jackson? And that, the book was filled with moments like that where I knew the history, I knew it, but as it began to come together and the pieces fell in place and I began to see the bigger and bigger picture, I was astounded at what was becoming visible 
And it wasn't just we had a nation that had a few bad apples. But it was that we have a nation that was literally set up, as Singtran had just said, about the superiority of, of the white European Christian male over and against the African body and the, and, the, and the native body. But then how that narrative, through that dysfunctional theological imagination, was used to literally ethnically cleanse and commit genocide and to enslave the people that were thought to be inferior. And then the quote that just sums it all up was in 1851 by the the governor of California, and his name is Peter Burnett, and in a speech he gave his State of the State Address in 1851, he said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or the wisdom of man to avert. Now, he's not talking and saying there is a famine going on, it's not raining, and we can't feed these people, and they're starving. And he's not saying disease has broken out, and we can't stop its spread, and these people are dying. He is literally saying we cannot stop killing these people as we complete our manifest destiny, and that will not end until they become extinct. And you just begin, as you put these pieces together and realize this is what our nation celebrates. We have 20 medals of honor given by the U.S. Congress to soldiers who participated in the massacre at Wounded Knee. This is what we celebrate. And the, the two chapters in our book, chapters, I think they're nine and 10, which talk about the history of Lincoln, I think are two of some of the most powerful chapters in the book, because not only do we lay out this history, but we frame it in a way that helps us understand why our country celebrates someone who was intentionally committing genocide and who was unapologetically a white supremacist. And that's where it becomes deeply, deeply troubling. And the book, that was just one example of one aspect of the book, but there, there are probably three or four of those periods like that throughout the writing of this book, where as the pieces came together, this was mind boggling to think about what that meant and what, that, what we had to wrestle with, not only as a nation, but even as a church. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. 
this year uh, marks the 75th anniversary at the end of World War II and the fall of one of the most malevolent regimes in human history. And for many, when they think of genocide and dehumanization, they think of the Holocaust at the hands of, of the German Nazis. And yet America has a history of displacement and dissemination and destruction of native lives, not just by the hands of renegade explorers, uh, but carried out by the U.S. government. And you can add this to the mass incarceration of African-Americans post Jim Crow laws, the displacement and confinement of Japanese Americans, the marginalization of members of the LGBTQ community, and the dismissal of refugees seeking relief along the Texas-Mexico border. So how do local churches work alongside congregations to begin to come to terms with this recent history of dehumanization? And, and what are some of the ways in which the church is living into a diseased theological imagination today? Yeah, I think um, one of the challenges is for us as a church, uh, especially the church in the West, uh, to examine where a lot of these ideas and actions have come from. Um, and I think, uh, as we say in the book, um, when, especially as a nation, um, the nation has not lost a war where um, it's, it's been forced to be occupied by other people or forced to have a new government by another nation. Um, so there's never been that sense of uh, defeat um, that actually could be course correction. Um, and so because of the kind of the reality of, uh, of, of um, having won so many wars and feeling not just militarily justified for our actions, but also maybe even spiritually uh, or philosophically justified in our actions. Um, we tend not to examine uh, some of our shortcomings. Um, and so have we examined uh, how profoundly devastating our policies and our actions against the Native people has been? Um, you know, the, the, the level of destruction and the, uh, the decimation of the Native community um, statistically was actually worse than the Holocaust in terms of percentage of lives lost, percentage of people um, killed and, and um, lost in the whole process of westward expansion. Uh, and yet that's, that's never been called into question or that's never been discussed to say, uh, well, what led us to believe that this was okay? Um, what was the imagination? What was the theological uh, impetus uh, or the philosophical assumption? that led us to these kinds of actions that had devastating effects. Uh, but we have never really taken the time to examine that and to say, what are the patterns we are repeating because we never examined what led to the genocide of the native people, the long-term brutal enslavement of the African people, African-American uh, community. Um, so I think on a, maybe on a small scale uh, in the local church, uh, what could happen is that re-examination of uh, what are the gaps in our theology? What are the places where our theology um, has, has really fallen short? Um, and go back and look at some of this history. 
Look at the history of the Native American community. Look at the history of African-American slave uh, trade and the ongoing through incarceration, through uh, voter rights restrictions. Um, and as we examine that history to be able to actually call into question, well, what got us to, to this place where we made these assumptions about our, our inherent rightness, uh, that it is okay to do these things because it helped build America. It's okay to do these things because uh, it elevated a particular people group, such as white Americans, into positions of authority, into positions. Uh, the assumption that, hey, at least we did this, but we built white Christian America. Um, so I think um, the local church maybe needs to go back and take a look at that and say, you know, I think the church should be about on whatever scale it chooses to do, whether it's on the denominational scale, the national scale, international scale, but certainly on the local scale, uh, to ask some of these questions about um, what are some of our assumptions here? And how do we keep playing that out? As you're mentioning, that there are all these places that this keeps getting played out. Uh, the white supremacy has led to uh, the genocide of the natives and led to the enslavement of the African, but it also led to the internment of the, of the Japanese Americans. Uh, it led to the treatment of, of brown bodies, uh, in particular, in a way that is dehumanizing. Um, so these patterns repeat themselves. And by going back to history and learning about, the, about where these ideas, ideologies, imagination came from, it is hopefully a step towards the right direction to say, well, let's not repeat these patterns. Uh, let's examine where these patterns arose, what thought process led to this, what theological assumptions uh, led to this, what dysfunctional imagination led to this, and then really try to unpack that so that these mistakes don't keep repeating itself. Let's talk about the, the violence of the doctrine of discovery. You wrote, the formation of the doctrine of discovery in the 15th century was the culmination of the development of a diseased theological imagination that resulted in severely dysfunctional expressions of the church. The empire would serve the church by engaging in violence towards those deemed as others by the church. Thus, instead of seeking to restore relationships with others, the church would aid the state in seeking to expand empire, even at the cost of human lives. Mark, how do you see the church's disease, theological imagination expressing itself in violence today? One of the challenges with the doctrine of discovery, and we see this throughout um, church history, where, um, and we see it in the writings of the papal bulls with the creation of this category of people, this category of other known as the infidel, which was first applied um, to, the, to the Moors, who were the Muslims, later to indigenous peoples. And it, what it is, is it's a dehumanizing category. And the, the challenge with the diseased theological framework of the doctrine of discovery is that it creates these categories of other, these subhuman categories. And once you subhumanize somebody, once you dehumanize somebody, then you can do whatever you want to them. And so when, when you listen to the language today of the church, and I remember I was in, I was in a board meeting of a, of a conservative Christian organization, and we were talking about the LGBTQ community, and this organization was wrestling with, with not what was their stance on LGBTQ, but basically how do we minister and live in a world where the LGBTQ community is, is a part of the broader framework. And I listened to the dialogue 
And within three minutes, the conversation became other. Those people, they do this. And it, it began, there was a degree of separation. It wasn't yet dehumanizing language, but it was putting the members of the LGBTQ community into a category of other. And after, after a few moments, I just stopped and I said, would you listen to how we're talking? I said, we are, we are separating, putting a, a, a space of separation in our language as we're even just beginning to talk about this issue. You know, if, if you look at um, President Bush, who was very conservative, the second President Bush, conservative president, and his vice president, Dick Cheney, was one of the strongest, I'm not saying it necessarily in a positive sense, but he was a very strong vice president. And he had President Bush's back on almost every single issue, except for one gay marriage. Why? Because his daughter is a lesbian. And that category of people, the LGBTQ community, had suddenly become incredibly human to him. And he could not imagine passing legislation that would demean or even remove rights from them. And so he was very bold and very upfront to, to not back Bush in his language around gay marriage. Why? Because the LGBTQ community was no longer a category of other to him. It included his daughter. This group had become very human to him, and he realized that he couldn't do what even his boss was trying to do. And this is, this is one of the biggest challenges I think that the church is facing today, which is as, as Christians, we tend to live in these bubbles that separate us from the world and from the people around. And maybe we occasionally will go outside the bubble to drop off some charity or to, to benevolently allow people to associate with us in some way. But then we will always go back inside our bubble where we're safe and we can control things and we're not being tainted by the world. I'm speaking, of course, very, very, very sarcastically here. And that's one of the biggest challenges is, is when, when the church continues to use these category of others to put a wall of separation between us and the world. That's the first step to beginning to dehumanize. And once you dehumanize somebody, once you have a belief that because they are not a part of our group, they are somehow less than, that's what happens. And this is why when you look at Jesus, right, he's out with his disciples one day. And the disciples are kind of proud of themselves because they found this guy who was driving out demons in the name of Jesus, and they stopped him. And they came and reported to their master. They were pretty proud of what they had done. Hey, Jesus, we found this guy. He was casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. And Jesus was in, upset with them and said, don't stop them. Anyone who gives you even a cup of water, my name, will not lose their reward. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And he says, if you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, 
it would be better if you tied a millstone around your neck and jumped into the ocean. If your right hand causes you to believe you're better than someone else, Jesus said, chop it off. It's better that you enter life maimed than with two hands to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to think you are better than someone else, gouge it out. It's better to go into life blind than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus saves his strongest warnings, not for the people living in sin, not for the tax collectors, not for the prostitutes, not for those people committing adultery, not for the, even the Romans or for the people who are selling out to the Romans. His strongest warnings comes to his disciples when they begin thinking that because they are with Jesus, they are somehow better than others. And that's when Jesus pulls out the direct threats of hell and says, this is exactly where that type of thinking is going to lead you. And this is the challenge is, is the church today, because it lives in a bubble, because it has separated itself, because it believes that there is such a thing as a Christian empire and that the people who do not believe, act like, think, worship, talk like them are somehow less. This not only justifies the extreme and blatant violence of our past, the enslavement of African people and the genocide of Native peoples, but it's these categories of other that allow us to begin passing legislation, barring these people from living this way and barring those people from participating in society in that way. And that is incredibly dangerous. I guess a, a question I mean, from your, your personal side, um, you know, you're, you're running as an independent uh, person for the office of, of president. How, how does, how does one, as, as you talked about, have, you know, theology for Democratic side, theology for Republican side? Um, how, how do you, as you run, consider how your personal theology gives shape to policy, um, to fighting corruption, to, um, to standing against the, the, the many forms of dehumanization? Yeah, so I am very upfront with people. I am a Christian. Uh, my, my thoughts and a lot of my ideas are, are influenced or even shaped some by my faith. But I'm also very adamant to tell people that I am not running as a Christian president. I'm not the Christian candidate. Um, my goal is not to legislate my theologies. And so while I may try to, um, I, I have, I definitely have a sense of right and wrong. I have a sense of moral and immoral. I have a sense of good and bad. And I want to, I want to persuade people and, and influence people to have a moral code. I think there's a moral code we should live by, both as in, in individuals and as a nation. But I look very closely at when, if my argument boils down to simply you have to do this because the Bible says, I, I don't have much of an argument for a secular government to, to do these things, you know? And so I, I didn't phrase that as well as I would have liked to, but I, I work very hard to 
instead of trying to force everyone to live like me and to believe what I believe religiously and theologically, I work very hard to try to create an environment where people have the ability to, to worship and to believe and to, to um, live the way that they want to live. Now there becomes, obviously, if your belief is that you get to kill people, well, then that's not a way to live in society. Just like if your belief is, well, these people can get married and those people can't, then you need to, <laughs> those are not the beliefs that we need to live by. We need to find a way to live together. Um, and I, I talk a lot about kind of the difference between um, pluralism and assimilation. And while I would biblically argue, I don't think pluralism is necessarily a biblical value. I think the, the gospel, the church can thrive in a pluralistic environment. You know, when there's a story of Jesus where he was, he was out and um, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, hey, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus answered him. He said, well, you do these things. He listed off like five or six things. Do A, B, C, D, and E. The guy's like, cool, I've done those. I'm in. Jesus said, well, hold on a minute. You're missing something. Go sell everything and then come follow me. And the guy was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away. Now, the amazing thing is that Jesus let the guy walk. Right? If Jesus were a white evangelical or even a, just a, a boomer or a Gen Xer, he would, have, he would have done one of three things probably. He would have mocked the guy, hey, you're an idiot, you're going to hell. He would have grabbed him, twisted his arm and said, I don't care what you believe, you're going to follow me whether you like it or not. Or he would have lowered the bar, well, don't sell everything, just give away something nice, come on, we'll make room for you. But Jesus let the guy walk away. They still had to live in society together. They still had to see each other in the marketplace. They still, had to, they still had to go to synagogue together. Jesus was very content. The guy asked him a question. Jesus gave him an answer. The guy made a decision, and Jesus let him walk away. The challenge we have as Christians frequently is we don't think our job is to speak the truth. We think our job is to force people to live like we live and believe what like we believe. And that's not our job. We can't control those types of things. And so the, the same way as I, I think as, as Christians, you know, we can ask, what does it mean to, to build a case for something, to build an argument for something, to lay out a, an understanding of something, but if, if it doesn't go that way, okay, well, I live in a society that's not just governed by my by people like me, and so we're going to let you know, we're going to allow people to to have different beliefs and different understandings than we have. The goal is not to make a Christian empire. The church is something separate from the empire, and because and we argue this in the book because the church accepts the heresy of Christendom, it has done more to exasperate the violence of the empire than it has done to, to curb the injustices of it. Because the church now can offer theological cover for why the empire behaves in such a way, this actually allows the empire to commit atrocities without apology, without regret. And that has been incredibly harmful not only for native peoples, but for many people who don't fit into that, that arena. 
this is a, a deeply historical and theological work, but I know y'all also wrote it uh, for local church ministers and for congregations. So how do you see this being a resource in a practical way for, for them? Well, you know, I, I, I still strongly, strongly believe, and, and this is my, uh, my kind of bias as a professor, uh, that Americans don't read enough. <laughs> so um, if this were to be read together and discussed uh, in a small group in a local church, um, and, you know, and I, I, I'm a big proponent of, you know, read the whole book from beginning to end, uh, but if there are certain areas that needed further discussion, um, so, you know, particular church communities might say, hey, we really need to have this discussion about trauma. Uh, and there's a chapter in there about trauma um, or a community to say, yeah, we, I don't think we understand the Native American story all that well. And to take the time and the effort to read the sections where it's in particular, the, how Westwood expansion impacted. So um, I, I think um, uh, learning these stories, um, and I think what we try to do is to give as much information in as condensed and as accessible a format as possible um, so that, you know, as you're reading through these chapters, and the chapters are relatively short. We, one of the editorial changes was to go from six chapters to about 12 chapters. Uh, so that, you know, as you're reading through these chapters, does it spark some other commentary or, or reflection? Uh, so that might be one way where small groups can uh, read a book together, read this book together and talk about the issues that are being raised uh, chapter by chapter. I hope pastors would take a look at this book and say, hey, there are these things, themes uh, in stories and statistics uh, that I think will be helpful to share with the congregation. Um, and, you know, I, I've often found as a preacher and as a former preacher and as a church attendee for a long time, that so much of our illustrations tend to be so superficial. Um, and our uh, Maybe it would be nice to hear some stories that are maybe negative in, in the sense of, yeah, it's not about all that good that is happening in the world, but it might be worthwhile to share with the congregation. Uh, these challenges have existed, and these stories are a blight on uh, American church's history, but it is well worth sharing so that, again, we don't repeat these mistakes. Um, so, you know, like any book, I, I would hope that individuals would read it, uh, but also in kind of a... Uh, in community to um, bat around a lot of these ideas that are there, um, and then to have conversations about them, whether that is through uh, the pulpit uh, or through small groups or through kind of reading groups, um, and begin to ask the questions, how is my current state of where I am and what I'm doing, um, how has that been shaped by this dysfunctional imagination that's being uh, uh, in this book. If you want to stay connected with Mark Charles and Sung Chan Ra, you can follow their respective social media pages. Of course, go out and purchase Unsettling Truths wherever books are sold. Um, Mark and Sung Chan, uh, thank you for having the courage to call us to lament and rebuke of this devastating history and its modern implications. And thank you for inviting us to seek the betterment and love of all of our neighbors. You're very welcome. It's been a, an honor to be with you, to talk with your audience about this book. Um, I really hope that they will be intrigued enough to join this conversation. Uh, my pleasure. Um, we really uh, appreciated the chance. Mark and I, I think, are both thrilled that um, there's a chance for this book to be read by 
as wide an audience as possible, um, and that uh, there would be a response. Uh, not just kind of a, oh, that was an interesting thing that I read, uh, but that there would be a response. And uh, I think we'll both agree that um, the biblical response of lament and the corresponding action to that sense of lament uh, would be a very uh, significant and important byproduct of, of, of this book. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.